Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. This is part one of technological disruption in the music and entertainment industry with Vicky Nauman. Listen in as we deconstruct major changes in the industry, how artists can profit without being signed, and how you can forge your own path as a consultant in this wild industry. This is an episode you don't want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Thank you so much, Vicky, for being on the First Act Podcast. Well, I'm very happy to be here, Harris. Thank you. <laughs> Super. So I know that you have a wide variety of experience all across the music, media, and entertainment industry. So let's give people an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. I have a kind of a speed round of questions that I like to kick it off with. Are you cool with that? That sounds perfect. Cool. All right. So my first question for you is, how would you define your role in the music, media, and tech industry? That's a good broad question for this. I think a lot of what I do is I act as a translator. And I learned this when I was first starting out in music tech, that I would go to meetings with tech companies and music companies and the tech people would say, I don't, I don't understand what they're talking about. I don't want to work with these people. And then I'd talk to the music companies and they'd say, we don't, we don't really like these guys. And, you know, we don't understand what they want out of it. And I, I walked away from the meetings saying, well, I thought that was a great meeting. I understood both sides. And so I started recognizing that there were small things from nuances of how you present your company and an opportunity that you might share together to really big gaps around business models, incentives, and how each of our respective sides to this music and technology industry work that the other side didn't understand. And so now I've kind of manifested this into more of a business where it's not just translating and facilitating conversations, but it's also creating a business model that would be accepted on both sides, creating understanding around using intellectual property and why somebody needs to get paid for that. And also explaining the enormous technology challenges that many companies have to bring music to life inside of platforms. And so there's a lot of gaps between these two industries, even though they're really highly interrelated. And so I take on all of that to try to create better understanding and more sustainable deals. Well, that makes a lot of sense because you do, like I was mentioning before, you have a lot of varied experience across marketing, broadcast radio, content, strategic partnerships, business strategy. I know the list goes on. I even thought you were a lawyer when we first spoke because of all your experience. And now it sounds like you work a lot with technology and IP and you really bridge that gap between the media companies who are, like you mentioned, a lot more technologically risk averse, where they focus more on creative as opposed to the technology component, and they might adopt some technology later on. Whereas the technology companies like to move really fast and don't necessarily have the right people in place to break in on the entertainment side. So I guess that's sort of where you fit into these industries. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's, you know, the music sector, everything in content, and I I hesitate to use that word because many people feel like it's art, but it is bits of content that are going to run through pipes into devices and on networks. 
And on that side of the industry, they've already created IP and they have assets that are valuable and that have a inherent cultural value as well as a commercial value. And a lot of times, you know, technology companies, they kind of come crashing into the industry and they think, well, they should just want to work with us because we'll promote their music. And what they don't understand is like, well, there have been a thousand companies before you who have come up with this and then it hasn't panned out. And so you need to kind of level set the conversations from the beginning of you know, certain words you shouldn't use. And you need to recognize that each side is bringing something different to the table. And there's always gaps and always misunderstandings on both sides. You know, the tech industry tends to often say, well, we've built a platform, we've built pipes, we've built devices, you know, we just, we don't care what's in it. We just want music in there. And then the music sector looks at that and says, well, you don't seem to value the care and the work that has gone into us creating this product. And if you don't value it, then we don't want to participate in it. Exactly. When people reach that point in a conversation, it's hard because then you have to, you have to unpack it and you have to kind of dig everybody out and then get them on the right conversational track. Absolutely. And that's where it's so important to actually have the established relationships and understand the nuances of how the entertainment industry actually functions, right? Because there's a lot of big personalities in that space. And while in some cases it might make sense to adopt technology that is very quick to scale and it could actually benefit the entertainment industry, well, there's still a lot of these players that have been in the space for a long time and have had enormous success because of you know, kind of keeping cards close to their chest or having their own strategies and doing what they believe in and what has been tried and true and has worked for them. So a lot of the times they see this new technology as, well, why do I need this? Right. And especially if if you're starting to hurt my feelings, then I really don't need it. Well, exactly. And also, when is a business model going to take hold? And I think looking at on-demand streaming is a really, really great example of this because We had Rhapsody in the U.S. that was the pioneer, really, in creating an all-you-can-eat on-demand streaming model. It never really achieved massive scale, and we could probably sit and argue about the reasons why for that, you know, for the entirety of your podcast. But among other things, it was U.S. only. It was in an era in the mid-2000s when we had barely started to get smartphones working. So a lot of it was desktop listening. Nobody wants to sit and listen to music on the desktop. I was at Sonos at the time. So we had Rhapsody built into Sonos, which really was transformative for both companies. For the kids out there who don't know what Rhapsody is, do you want to just brief over that? Yes. Rhapsody was a Spotify-like service. It was an on-demand music service that had catalog from everyone. It was very much the early vision of a jukebox in the sky where everything was cloud-based, everything was streaming, and ended up getting absorbed into Napster, which was the legal service that still has the name from the first disruptive service. So Rhapsody and Napster are one and the same now, and they are still around, but they were an early company. And many people from the rights holder standpoint really wanted this kind of a model, this cloud-based all-you-can-eat model to succeed. But for whatever reason, it wasn't until Spotify really came around and they came from outside the US. So they got rights all over Europe. 
And then when they finally got their deals done in the US, it was really around 2012, 2013, that scale started to happen. And so that's a really good example where there was a technology, a platform, a use case, even the price point was the same and it didn't achieve scale. And so a lot of the rights holders were kind of scratching their heads saying, you know, we want this to happen, but should we really invest in infrastructure to support this kind of granular, you know, stream-based reporting and should we really keep placing bets on this technology? And it really wasn't until Spotify came onto the scene. At that point, there were a number of different companies. There was RDO and Mog, and Mog got acquired as Beats, and then Beats got absorbed into Apple, and that became Apple Music. But it's basically now that is the foundation of revenues in the industry. But it took a really, really long time for consumer adoption, as well as global adoption as a primary streaming and primary consumption method. Right. So it sounds a lot like there's a big emphasis on how you're going to strategize the release of your product into a new media industry. Is that right? Like, it sounds to me that Rhapsody was trying to break in in North America, but Spotify had already established itself as a leader across Europe. And because it had all of these partnerships and it already established itself, then breaking into North America was just that much easier. Is that sort of why Spotify, will say, won that war? Yeah, I think for companies that started in the U.S., I always advise everyone, you know, like if you have a home market, get your home market and maybe one other market, get that to work before you start expanding. Because once you get into, you know, every single territory has something different, you know, how much people use credit cards, how much you have to localize in local currency and local language. I mean, it's a big lift to build a product and have it be available globally. Local catalogs are different. And so I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination that it was easy for Spotify to launch. In fact, it got hung up. Their launch got hung up in negotiations with labels for quite some time, but they had already established a fantastic product outside of the US and they had already established incredible adoption, especially in the Nordic countries. And one of the things that was really important in those early days was that in territories where downloads had taken hold, like the US, there was a big, big download market, that streaming was much, much slower to adopt. Because if you think about the consumers, they had gone from buying vinyl and then maybe they bought cassettes, and then they bought CDs, and then it went to digital, and they ripped their CDs, but then that was really cumbersome. Then they bought downloads. And so when streaming came around, it was really hard in markets where, where downloads had been very popular for people to, to let go of downloads and see the value of cloud-based. Right. But in countries like Norway and Sweden, where downloads had never really achieved any kind of scale or adoption, they immediately saw the value of going from CDs to cloud-based. Streaming was adopted much more quickly in the Nordic territories. And that was really a North Star for everyone because we saw, okay, it's working. 
you know, it's working over there. So, you know, we just need to figure out the right marketing, the right messaging, the right price points for all the other territories, you know, and the rest is kind of history with Spotify entering the U.S. and really achieving impressive scale. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you were talking about this, I I was also thinking about, you know, I've seen what some of the older versions of Spotify have looked like. And, you know, this will kind of be maybe the last touch point about Spotify, because then I want to dive more into your experience. But one of the things that I think about from, you know, like a technology entrepreneurial standpoint is how important it is in the entertainment and music industry for your software to be extremely clean and user friendly. Because, there have been incredible softwares that have been built in entertainment or in music as a whole. And they were not adopted, I think, often because the tech might have been, or maybe visually, they just weren't sexy enough. They need to be clean and sleek and user-friendly enough and very intuitive. It was honestly one of the reasons why I never even adopted Apple Music and I just went straight to Spotify. I liked the colors of Spotify. It was just like the black and the green. It was simple. The logo looked nice. And like, it's so silly to say, but it's like, for me, Apple Music and Spotify were interchangeable, and that made Spotify a clear winner to me. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult to build an elegant, simple user interface with music. And I think because we've had, we've all used Pandora and Spotify and maybe some earlier services like Mog or RDO, that to get it right, it seems really effortless, but to build it is incredibly difficult because you have millions and millions of songs. How do you present those to users? You have to have the right blend of search and let people find whatever they want, as well as push notifications and getting the right music in front of people. Because you know, one of the biggest problems with these all-you-can-eat services is the cold start is when you sign up and then you have a blank search bar and you're like, I have everything that I could listen to, but I don't know what I want to hear. And so Spotify really, their product team is remarkable and they have done so much testing all over the world. They almost always have different versions that that they're trying out and testing different features. And I remember when I was working at Sonos, I was trying to find music streaming companies all over the world. And I found Spotify in Stockholm when they had just 17 employees. And so it was just like any other startup, you know, you walk in and they had the green logo and it was just a small crew. And they had these guys, Nicholas and Petra and Daniel were there and they were all figuring out how are we going to get rights and how are we going to build this product? But one of the big driving motivations at that stage was They wanted music to be able to be played as quickly and without any kind of buffering or any kind of issues of playback so that it would be better than locally stored files. And it's really important to think about things like that, because at that time, we didn't have networks and we didn't have devices that had the right storage. We didn't have a lot of the things that now we have fat pipes and all sorts of capabilities. But at that time, we didn't. And so they knew that if they got the user experience right, that everything else would follow. And that's not just presenting music and merchandising music. It's also, how do you buffer into the stream to be able to cache a little bit so that you never are going to have music not play back and also try to accommodate people who don't necessarily have fiber fast connections in their homes or on the go. And how do you build for that? It's really challenging. Yeah. When I was digging a little bit deeper into streaming, when I had first adopted Spotify in 2015, I was a laggard at that point. And 
you know, when I was digging into how streaming actually works, it's really just an instantaneous download, right? Yeah. And a lot of people just think, oh, I'm just streaming it. And there's something different between downloading something. Because when you download like a video, it takes time. Or when you would use like uTorrent or any of the torrents that you'd, you know, steal movies and music from the Pirate Bay or wherever. Because I remember when, you know, at a certain point, like I bought all of Green Day's collection. But then at a certain point, I said, I could just download it and have all of it for free. Which like as a 14 year old, I wasn't thinking about the artist's well-being. I said, Green Day's rich. That was a, a really, really big part of the early days where, you know, the industry went from CDs, you know, they cost like a dollar to manufacture and they were being sold for $24. Right. And so I definitely don't advocate for piracy, but there was a reason why people also felt completely justified because especially if they, if they bought the CDs and then they bought the downloads and then they bought cassettes before that, they bought their collection three or four times. So when piracy came around and they, they were like, great, I've already bought all of this music. Now I can get it all for free. They didn't think about how that would negatively impact the artist. And it was honestly for the first, I mean, I started working in this in you know, 1999, which sounds like, Whenever I talk to college classes, I'm always mindful that that many people were not born at that time. And it to me, it feels like yesterday. But when I first started working in this, it was all just this massive problem of piracy. And I had gone to work at Real Networks at one of the first legally licensed services called MusicNet. And at the outset, I was really naive because I thought, this is going to be great. Everyone's going to make so much more money. And it, the technology is already there. All we have to do is legalize it and put a transaction engine on it. That'll probably take like five years. And then I got to Real Networks and I realized, oh God, you know, the labels didn't want to give us any of their music and they were protective over CD sales. And they wanted to only give us the songs on an album that were not the hits and all sorts of craziness. And so I realized this is going to take a really, really long time. But it was really from like 2000 till 2010 that almost every industry event around the world was focused on how do we move people from free and pirated services into legal services? And, and something paid. Yes, exactly. And then getting things paid. And when you try to get people to migrate off of a pirate service, you're never going to get everyone. There's always going to be piracy because that's just the way human nature works. But you can create a better experience. That was always my driving passion was... If we just build really, really amazing user experiences at price points that people are willing to pay, whether that's music in a game, music in a streaming service, music in any kind of digital experience, I never doubted that people would pay. And there were many people who did doubt that. In fact, I remember sitting in one of the major label offices in New York, probably like 2008, 9, 10 era, and they said, we just don't think there's ever going to be value in recorded music again. And I was shocked because I thought, well, I think there's going to be value. I think there is absolutely value. And if you don't believe there's value, you probably need to get into another business other than being a record label. Right. If you don't believe it, then how are you going to be able to sell that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, it was also, I think, in that era of going from CDs to streaming, you know, CDs 
that was a high margin, fairly low complexity business. You develop an artist, you go into the studio, you press that music onto a plastic disc, you have distribution channels that you control into retail, and you have radio that you service, and everybody is just printing money. And then it goes to digital where it's no longer about albums. It's about singles. There's a supply chain. The publishing has been separated from the master recording. So there's all sorts of problems around rights and clearances and settlement. And all of that was going from high margin, low complexity to high complexity, low margin. And that's like the airline business. Like you do not want to be in the high complexity, low margin business. No, absolutely not. (laughs) That was where how the industry was morphing. And it was really difficult because it also required everyone to shore up their systems and get staff people who understood technology and understood data and making sense of data and having terabytes of reports coming from streaming services. And at the time, until the money started flowing, nobody really wanted to invest because they weren't sure if it was going to stay. But we've made a huge progress since that time. And it's kind of now, you know, when I think back on it of how for literally 10 years, it was just ideas and, you know, startups raising money and failures. And, you know, we didn't have the right networks, the right platforms. There were lots and lots of reasons why things failed. But I'm really proud. I'm really proud to have been a part of that and to see where the industry has landed now. Thank you for sharing all of that. Thanks for tuning in to part one. Stay tuned for part two. Remember, new episodes release every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific. See you there.